We've all been in our 20s and felt lost, but there's an added layer that comes with being an Asian American woman and feeling like you are up against an example or an ether or a monster that you've never even encountered before. And now I want to welcome my guest today, Kat Chan, or rather our guest, because you are friends and you're listening to this podcast. And I really enjoyed this conversation. I thought Kat was so real and so honest about her journey as a woman growing up in this country, as someone who was Asian American and just trying to navigate her life. She talks about her time in advertising and how that even wasn't even even wasn't even that wasn't even something that she wanted to get into long term but felt the obligation to stick with it and now you're going to watch this journey unfold the conflict and the resolution i hope you enjoy and grab a cup of coffee sip a cup of tea this is the yellow chair collective podcast i'm your host helen garcia one thing i forgot to mention this video podcast is going to be audio today. We're going to go a little bit old school, but let's start the show. How are you doing? Are you stressed? I mean, like right now. Just for you. <laughs> Just for me. I'm doing pretty good. This week has been a lot more organized and peaceful. It hasn't felt like too much of a crazy rush. So that always helps me to feel a little bit better and I've been exercising I think that's been helping yeah there's just something magical about exercise for me I've noticed that I'm a lot more calm when I exert physical exercise same some so magical maybe we were just meant to be beings not (laughs) sedentary who would have thought (laughs) who would have thought do I have legs for a reason right (laughs) oh I'm super thinking this shell i really do feel much more calmer and way more present more settled every time i exercise so yeah i think that's been helping a lot because of this this residual halo sort of effect that you get good i'm glad that things have been okay because i think that when you're a therapist it's easy to get stressed really quickly i don't know i mean we were just having this conversation the other day it's so easy to inhale someone else's energy because I think that that you're supposed to be in it with a client. Aha. Uh-huh. Yeah. I think about that a lot, actually. I'm so in it like when it's over and done with in terms of the session itself. I'm still feeling everything that we were feeling before. It gets hard not to be a, a bit of a sponge, just soaking up all the energy. It takes very deliberate practice to deliberately shift myself out of that space or to release whatever energies or things that are still kind of on me. So it's, it's something that has to be very intentional for me. I start to forget myself a little bit. Forget that I live a different life in a different world. I have my own goals, my own. It takes a lot of self-awareness to understand where you are in that space. I've never heard anyone articulate it in the way that you're articulating it right now. Really? Yeah. I think this is just something that you do naturally, where you're just, you say things in a way that it's very kind and reflective. So when you said that, 
what I was hearing was just honesty, but honesty said with a ton of grails. I have been practicing that a lot because I do think it's important. I guess I'm in like therapy land right now, but as a therapist, I think it's important in therapy that there is a level of that honesty. I don't think that agreement with everything that your client says or, or even, oh, you're so right, is all that's helpful in the therapy space. I had to figure out my own way of being able to be honest with people while also maintaining a sense of kindness. I feel like we also lose that in this world. Wow, there's some people who are just saying all those harsh things and there may be some nugget or grain of truth at the center and then they're just kind of, I'm just being honest. I'm just being real. <laughs> and this is so delivered. It's almost mm. done with a harmful intention rather than a kind intention. I really react to that. This is kind of my way of flipping the script a little bit on that and seeing if there is a way to be honest, not to suppress that or give up that value, but to do it in a kind way. Hmm. I once heard someone say, it's hard for me to hear you when you're speaking to me in that tone. When our human brains are so advanced that we can pick up on the nuances on someone's face, on the way someone is behaving or their intention subconsciously we take things from our past and realize oh this person is actually being passive aggressive or this person is saying that they love me but there's something in my heart or in my stomach that's saying otherwise absolutely i think it's so human to be triggered in that way to react in that way to pick up on something so subtle that even our thinking brain did get a chance to really process and make sense of it's such a human thing. And I think we sometimes get a little, I don't know, at least conversation in relationships, we sometimes get a little bit distracted by that stuff. We stop at the, wow, that was so hurtful how it was said. And then we stop there and we lose the ultimate message that was trying to be conveyed. We lose that opportunity for connection, for relationship. What I've noticed about you is whenever I see you interact with people or whenever you interact with me, you're genuinely interested. I think that there are people that find a balance between conversation, but you just are curious. I'm wondering where that comes from or if that's biological embedded in your DNA. At the core of it, I have always been curious. I was thinking about this. I loved space, outer space. And just that idea of there is more out there that we don't see, that we don't live in. And also it's so beautiful as well. So breathtaking. It was fascinating to me. So as a kid, I had this whole little, I had this little science collection of books and it was these thin little books on a lot of different topics of science. And there was one on geology, one on physics. And I think I literally out of 10 or 12 of these little pamphlet books, there was a deep comfort in looking out in outer space. 
whenever I look up at the sky or when I walk out of my office, there's this big parking lot there. But when you walk out into this parking lot, you just see this huge sky all around. And I think there's this intuitive sense of looking up at the sky and just feeling really small in a really good, comforting way. That the things that you worry about and the things that you obsess over and feel are the biggest, most irreparable issues <laughs> ever. You look at the sky and you just suddenly get so much perspective all in that instant, all intuitively in your body that it's going to be okay. There's this larger world out there that things that you think about, it's actually not so, so terrifying. Was there a moment in your life that you had that profound realization? I have this realization at least once a week, <laughs> even to this <laughs> Yeah, that's a good question. I wish there was a moment where I could sense that. I grew up living in a big city and I was indoors a lot, a very sort of urban city environment. I didn't spend a lot of time out in a backyard or even camping or spending time in nature. I don't have a lot of memories of me being outside and looking up at the sky until when I was older, I would say, when I started to discover that I really liked nature, which I guess I didn't realize about myself until my mid-20s or something. Yeah, that's so interesting. So. You just don't know until you I go somewhere so. else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, unfortunately, life wasn't that way for me. I don't have the realization often. I struggled with a lot of, I didn't know it was anxiety at the time, but whenever I would lose a paperclip, I would get really nervous. Or when I, I would take a test, my body would start shivering. But it wasn't until I went to college, I had a, I think it was one of my guy friends went up to me and he said, you're carrying so much anxiousness. You're really irritable whenever something doesn't go your way. And for me, it had to take an outsider looking into my life to realize what I wasn't. Like I wasn't creating the peace that I wanted for myself. It's interesting that you kind of have this internal sense of wisdom and introspection that you can look within yourself and realize that stuff. Yeah, that is really interesting that you say that. I, I do feel like I've always had some sort of sense, even, even when I did always know what it was trying to tell me. As a kid, when things would go wrong and there was a lot of conflict in my family, I always had the sense that just something wasn't right. It wasn't, I necessarily had a lot of times where I could compare with other families or just get a different perspective. It wasn't like I could compare that and see, oh yeah, obviously there's there's something amiss here. But it was just the sense that something wasn't quite right. Yeah. I was a very curious kid, but I, I would like to think that everybody has an inner wisdom. 
I don't want to make it sound as if some people have this and they're, maybe they're bored with it and other people don't. I genuinely believe that every single person has an internal compass, eternal wisdom, an intuition, some sort of inner knowing that tells them what they long for, what they need, the direction they should be traveling in in any given moment. I think it's oftentimes more a matter of we didn't get practice listening to it. We don't know where it is. We don't have that relationship. What I know about you is you worked in advertising for a couple of years after college. You majored in persuasive. I think it was like something persuasive arts. Is that what it was called? You said something that was really, really, what was it? (laughs) Yeah, it was something that I totally made up. It was like, (laughs) I totally made this up. And in hindsight, I'm like, way too much power to give to an 18 year old (laughs) to make up your own degree. That was the deal at NYU School of Gallatin, Howler. Yeah, you make up your own major. So everybody in the school had sort of their own spin on what they were studying. Yeah, and for me, it was called advertising and the art of persuasion. The reason why I ask you this question is because you weren't always to the place where you are now, but took a level of growth and it took a level of training yourself to really listen to you. You didn't automatically become a therapist. Can you walk me through the process of how that even happened? You have this idea of what a career in advertising is going to look like, but then you're miserable, but you stay for six years. Fill me in on the details of the why behind it, what you look back on and think now. Yeah. I mean, like you said, hindsight is twenty twenty, and I look back on it and I'm just whoa, that was so not the right place for me. And it is so clear now. I worked in advertising for six years. For the entire six years, I was in account management. There's different departments in advertising that all come together to basically create advertising campaigns for big companies, whether it's a TV commercial or, or something else. And as an account manager or being that account management role, that is really all about sort of managing the business aspect of of this type of work. So it's the client relationship aspect of it. It's the managing the finances aspect of it. It's about growing and selling your business, your services and the brand consultant as an advertising solution. And yeah, it just involved a lot of, it involved a lot of, to put it frankly, almost telling people what to do a little bit. You have to kind of organize a big team. You have to keep all the parts moving. You are the person that people come to for any sort of issues or problems. You're kind of the go-between in terms of the client and the rest of the team who actually executes on the creation of your advertising campaign. And it's so funny to look back on it now because I'm, I am not suited to do any of Who were you? Or if you met your 23, 24, 25-year-old self, what was she like? 
what, what did what did she like to do? What did she think she knew? Um, you, yeah, I know you're alluding to exactly that. At the time, you think so much about who you are, what you want in the world. I certainly believed that at the time. As a kid, I, I think I looked at the corporate world as this sort of as this goal that I wanted for myself, or think that my family and I didn't get to have, and it represented success in a lot of ways. I'd always wanted to have my own cubicle, as stupid as it sounds now. <laughs> I wanted to have my own cubicle. I wanted to have ideas that I could present in a meeting. I envisioned myself being in this in this world and I felt this really ambitious kind of person who thought she cared about brands and advertising and for maybe the first couple of years to a certain extent I did but looking back on it now I see how I sort of took those signs and I interpreted it one way when really there were other interpretations that I think that be better at the end. What initially drew me to advertising was that I really loved the concept of brand identities and how unique a brand could be and how a brand could express itself in the world and relate to other people. But I think at the time, to a certain extent, I was going through my own desire to have an identity and to figure out deep, who I <laughs> That's so, so deep. This really ties into this idea of toxic masculinity where people just don't know that they're fish in water and that oftentimes we live in this culture where we have to be tough. We have to swallow our tongue and, and bulldoze our way through. All of those things are signs of, of toxicity in our lives. When you're young, you look at the examples of what success is and you just want to embody that because you think that'll make you happy. But you lived that life and you weren't. And the bulk of those six years, I think, was me wrestling with that dissonance. That so you thought that helping other brands find identities would help you find your own identity? In a way, I didn't even realize that that was what I was craving and wanting. I was spending so much time interested in brands crafting their identities and their expressions of their identities, whether it's through a... TV commercial or a brand design. I didn't even realize that at the time, that's what I was craving for myself. Instead, it was fish and water experience that you described where I, I did buy into those ideas of what success means, what it looks like. I was very distracted by the glamour of it all. I started my advertising career in New York City, and it all felt really important. It had that air of we're doing something important. 
I was really distracted by that. I, I was drawn into that world, that sort of, I hate to call it a lie because for some people it's not, it's not a lie. For some people it is really meaningful. So I don't, that is something where in my looking back, I don't want to put down that world or say that there's something bad about it because there isn't. It's just something different. There are aspects of it that do have a lot of toxicity to it, but it just wasn't for me. And I got caught up in it. Wow. That's an incredible story. Because it is because it's the anti, it's the anti vision of what someone should be like. I think that, I don't think we talk about that narrative enough that you can reach the top of the mountain, but what if you were climbing the wrong mountain? Because you had no idea who you were. Yeah. Yeah, I was exactly. thinking about that the other day because I was always told in high school by every teacher, every every motivational speaker, dream big. And it was always woven in with this like assumption that dreaming big meant making a lot of money and becoming really successful and working in this corporate job and working in a high-rise building. To a sense, we are working in a high-rise building but we get to wear sweatshirts and be people and have conversations like <laughs> these as coworkers. But I think in the very early part of my adulthood, I was chasing that. I was like, how do I become successful? How do I achieve? How do I do all of that? And to some degree, I do have a very type A personality. I have to do everything excellent. And you know that about me. <laughs> but <laughs> you do. And I do. And I think that you can't dream big if you don't know who you are first. And I think that that's the narrative that people fail to tell you, that dream big comes after this journey of self-reflection. You have to know what that dream looks like for you. Yeah, I love that so, so much. And I don't know, this is very much common, I think, amongst their our Asian families, the wisdom comes from the older folks, the parents, the grandparents. They pass down to the kids what's right or what they should do or what their priorities are. Often that dream is almost given to us, whether explicitly or implicitly through the waters that we are swimming in, the people that we surround ourselves with, the things that they celebrate and emphasize as success, be it money, prestige, social validation, praise from other people or other families. You're so right in that. I think this is very true of our various Asian communities that despite our families immigrant families coming here for a better life, there wasn't that opportunity to dream for yourself or for your family that a lot of people may, may have had the opportunity to do. The dream was given to you. And then you come to a place where you are just so caught in that tension of, I don't know if this dream is really what I want. Ah. That's so, I'm, I'm feeling so many emotions because I think you're sharing a story that's so real. 
I've battled with that. I remember, and I'll share this story. When I was in, I think it, it was my sophomore year of college, I got really, really depressed. I was in bed for like two weeks and I wasn't answering any phone calls. And my dad literally drives from LA to Orange County where I went to college. And he meets me and buys me lunch. And he asked me this question of, why haven't you been answering our phones? We've got so worried about you. And I was like, because I was like, daddy, I don't want to disappoint you. I don't want to let you down. And he looked at me and he gave me a hug and just looked into my eyes and he was, you would never, ever disappoint me. He's like, you should follow what you want to do. And for the first time in my life, and I don't think people talk about this as Asian kids or Asian American kids to be specific, we don't ever have that conversation with our parents of, is it okay for me to do this? Is this okay for me to, I feel like I'm being selfish. And I had that conversation with my dad at that time. I was like, I feel like I'm being selfish because you're paying for college. You're supporting my private school college education. And he would, he told me, he's like, I don't know where you got this assumption. Maybe it was just what you saw, but I want you to be happy. And in that moment, I was, I just, I was like, like everything kind of, but I don't think a lot of people have that privilege to be able to talk to their dads and, and to sit and, to really be honest. Oh, I love that story. I know I, I'm going to cry. That is such a beautiful story. I'm going to take that and just carry that clothes because it doesn't matter if it happened to somebody else. Like don't wonderful gift to, to what you were story. saying. I think that, man, do you think you carried your parents' dream and not your own dream for a while? Or was it an implicit? I I don't. I. <laughs> that's a complicated question now that I'm thinking about it. Because I don't think I was carrying their dream. It wasn't their dream for me to be in advertising, for example, or to even have a corporate job that was not their dream for me that was sort of my interpretation of what I thought my dream was and me really being a a stubborn young adult and (laughs) really overexerting my boundaries because I didn't know how to negotiate boundaries at the time and say no I'm gonna take this dream (laughs) I'll show you. You make it that. I'll get a degree. I'll go to college. I'll get a four-year degree (laughs) in advertising. (laughs) The Asian rebellion. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) That was my rebellion. That was my version of the rebellion. I'm gonna go and prove myself. I'll be in corporate and not in hospital, mom. (laughs) Hilarious. I don't know what my parents' dreams were. For me, actually, I mean, there was a time period where my mom's sort of passive advice to me was to marry rich. They didn't have the sort of care that I think my mom was coming to the 
to that conversation with, to me, it, it, it really felt terrible because, and I don't think it was necessarily her fault that I was already feeling this way, but I had questioned my value for almost my entire life, as far as I could remember. And to get a comment that was meant to be helpful and savvy in a way, it actually made me feel very, quite worthless to be, to be honest. I feel sad for that, for that girl who thought that about herself. I didn't quite realize how lacking in a sense of identity I was. I honestly didn't really know much about myself. To get the kind of comments, it's, it's painful. And I feel sad for that, for that girl. Not in a sort of pitiful way. That's the distinction that I want to make. They don't pity her, but it's more so that I feel so sad that she had to go through that. And she had to think those things about herself. I want to cry. I think I'm feeling the tears coming out because that's hard. That's hard to hear that from your mom and to hear that from anyone. When I was growing up, I used to get teased for liking sports. My dad would work at night and my mom would work during the day. So I would spend time with my mom at night and I would spend my time with my dad in the day. During the summers, my dad would take me out and play baseball and play basketball with me. When I went to school, I would always be playing basketball and handball. And I would get these comments from boys of, you're on steroids, all of these things. And looking back, I knew it was a form of bullying, but it made me question my own identity as well. Of I am a woman, but a woman doesn't need to be playing with Barbie dolls or any of that. But I think identity and trying to find who you are as a person is a question that we have as humans innately. What am I here for? What's the meaning that I have in my life? What am I made to do in this world? And I think that as a teenager, there's so much thinking that goes into that. To be told those things, it's a hindrance. Yeah, it certainly did make me feel more confident to explore what I could offer to this world. It's another way to think about that question rather than it being self-focused of who do I want to be? What do I want? It's also, what do I want to offer to this world? What do I want to do for this world? What can I give? Which I think is another important way to think about identity as a more relational kind of a process and one that's connected to the larger world around us. It's not just self-serving, though that's important as well, but it's this process of, of figuring out what you can offer to. I love this conversation. I love it. Because you're being so real right now about your journey. So take me back to those moments. I'm going to shift a little bit and rewind back to advertising and this theme of identity and searching for who you are. Do you think you're there? Do you think you're like, I know who I am. I'm a lot more comfortable in my own skin. Oh, yeah. I think I 
know myself a lot better than say when I was 25, 26, caught in that struggle, that tension of there is something horribly wrong here, but I can't quite put my finger on it. It was years of pain, to be honest. When you're on the other side of it, it's easy to sort of be like, oh yeah, I did this and this and this, and now here I am and everything great. But honestly, it was years of pain and not knowing. I remember being 26, and that was probably at the height of me being very unhappy with the life that I was living. A large part of it due to this career path that I had taken that it was not clicking with me. And I remember being 26 and sitting on the couch and telling somebody, I don't know where to go if I didn't do advertising. Too late for me to go back to grad school. Everybody from college who decided to go to grad school, they're almost done with their grad school. It's way too late for me. And it took me another three years to then find myself in grad school. So you can tell what a long process this really was for me with so many layers of steps in between. It's funny to look back and, and think about me being so thinking I was so old at 26 and that there was no way in hell I could change my direction, that it was too late for me. And I look back and laugh at myself. Yeah, because when you think about it, I did a small stint in radio and there's an, a bunch of different skills. You have, to, you have to know timing, you have to know songs, you have to know artists. And I remember thinking, there's a level of specificity and mastery this will take for me to get better. And I'm wondering if that's what you were thinking when you were 26. Like, I don't know if, if I'm ready to know or to be a learner again. Maybe I'm too old. And yeah, I did not know how to conceptualize me making such a big change and being a student again. And I think a lot of the, the stuckness in all of that was also that I had trouble even imagining it as a possibility. So even sort of saying, I can't be in advertising anymore felt too scary because I didn't know what was on the other side of that sentence. It was just emptiness. It was this great expanse with nothing to fill it. And that, that was even too scary for me to really acknowledge, let alone come to terms with for a long time. And I think that's another reason why I stayed at advertising for so long, because of the unknown, because I couldn't conceptualize what was on the other side. So you didn't automatically go no. to grad school. It took you three years. What did you do in those three years when you were still in this like debating compromise? Yeah. So a large chunk of the time was me basically suffering through my last jobs in advertising. <laughs> I suffered. Yes. <laughs> it was a suffering time. So that's one thing that I did. It was the fumes in that, in that tank of advertising. <laughs> wow. I'm really appreciative of your honesty. What did you do with your three years? I, I went back to my job 
And kept suffering some more. <laughs> I kept suffering. I know, right? And I, I want to share that because I think so many people beat themselves up for not taking action or not knowing what to do. And it's, well, that's actually kind of part of the process. Even though at the time I didn't know that, I didn't feel that way, I was just lost. I kept doing what I knew. And I think things actually just got so bad that I had to make a change. I had to this this world and what got so bad for you Kat Helen with the challenging questions why are you so good at this (laughs) well I'm trying to fill in the details for people who are nosy bees like me no I love that it was a few things that were hard one I felt really disconnected to the work that we had to do that was being asked of me I didn't sort of see why I wanted to keep doing it it felt like something I wanted to get over with as soon as possible. I also think that my natural skill set and my natural temperament really didn't go along well with this work either. Yeah. Yeah. What does that mean? Can you give me an example? Yeah. I don't know how I feel about this example. But I think one of the things that this work asks of you is to be that sort of type A leader, if you will. So I can imagine like the class presidents being really good at this role. It's that sort of type A leader position who also has a very high amount of emotional intelligence. I think this goes into some of the ideas that were fed in the society. I hate not thinking of myself as a leader, but on some level, I don't necessarily consider myself a leader in that sort of traditional image of what a leader you might think of who is very vocal, speaks up, somebody who can organize a whole big group of people and have it be motivating and inspiring and organizing. So that's what I think of as a leader. I think that's such an important role in our society. It's hard for me to talk about myself as as not a leader. But to be honest, I don't know that that's where I thrive. When you were in those positions, when you started having to embody this person and you felt like you were being fake, Stephen Pressfield calls this almost like a shadow career. Have you heard of Stephen Pressfield? He wrote The War of Art. He's a writer that was in advertising as well, who ran away, became a truck driver, spent years of his life hiding from his calling, which was becoming a fiction writer. And he's since become a creator of of people, helping people understand that there's something called the resistance that happens in our lives where we understand that there's something wrong but our careers give us a shadow of who we want to become. There are parts in advertising that require emotional intelligence, but gave you or it fed you a slice of what you wanted, but it didn't really embody the fullness of who you knew you could be. It makes sense to me now why you felt a little lost in that journey, because it felt a little bit like you but it didn't feed you. That is a thousand percent what happened. That is the best summary of 
my journey that I've ever heard from anybody. So thank you for that gift. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, if I really think back to the things that I appreciated about that field, it's it's so many of the things that I get to indulge in in my work as a therapist and also in my personal life, how I spend my time. It's things me wanting to really get to know an audience really well. And in advertising, we do that for the purposes of selling products. And my goal and my my hope going into advertising was ultimately to move into the strategy side of the business, not account management. And that was what that role was really focused on. It was really embedding yourself in your audience who you're trying to market to, getting to know what they care about, what their needs are, and ultimately using that information to sell them things or to at least connect with them. <laughs> Doesn't it sound like therapy without the... But you didn't know. But I didn't know. And I will not, I refuse to shame myself for not knowing at the time. Because I don't know that I would have known if I hadn't gone through this whole exercise and realized what I don't like. It's it's valuable, even though it kind of took this roundabout way to get to this place where I am today. And and even this place where I am today is not a destination. It's just where I am right now. And it happens to suit me way better. Mm -hmm. That's such a good way of looking at it that we're not set in stone. I once heard Mel Robbins, she's a motivational speaker, say this of once you get to the top of the mountain, that's the bottom of your mountain and you're never really done. You're never done. And that's beautiful because we're not sentient beings who are supposed to just like live and then they can vacation for the rest of their lives. Life doesn't really work that way. So you're in advertising and then you realize that you're unhappy. Can you walk me through the the gradual steps of how you eventually started going to grad school, how you moved from New York to LA? Yeah, absolutely. I think moving to LA was the first step in changing my life in a way. So there's that big physical change in scenery. It was moving towards something that felt more aligned with where I was at the time. So I wanted more sunshine. I wanted to have a slower pace of life. I wanted more nature. Even the move to LA felt like it was moving more in alignment with who I was becoming. And I had moved just for logistical kind of reasons. My partner got a job offer in LA. And that was the reason why I moved. It wasn't for a necessarily a big life proclamation where I'm quitting everything I ever do and <laughs> moving and then we'd suddenly sell soap somewhere. <laughs> so I continued to work in advertising even while I was in LA. And that's when I was really having the worst times in that, in that field. Then I got to this point of being so, so bad that had to leave. In a way, there was a lot of mutuality to it, but the thing that ultimately pushed me into the rest of this world was because I had to. 
And I look back on it and I always think of it as the best thing that ever happened to me. Thank you so much for sharing that. Because I think hmm, we sometimes we just have to be kicked into it. Yeah. And there's no shame in that. Sometimes you need the push. Sometimes you need the courage to come from somewhere else before you can access some of your own courage, which everybody has. Yeah. And I think there's also a lot of shame and unspokenness around jobs and, and being fired or being let go or even being laid off. There's so much self-worth wrapped up in our professions and in performance that I almost want to pull back the curtain on that a little bit and be like, it doesn't have to be the end of the story, even if you do get fired from one thing. Was that your mindset when you got fired? Oh, hell no. <laughs> <laughs> because I also want to be mindful of the people that might be listening to this because people come to yellow chair because of life transition of things that happen to them in life. One of the reasons why I had the idea of doing this season more story-based is because I wanted to like peel back the curtain about how human we as therapists really are. And we're just here to serve and here to help. You were devastated. <laughs> yes. <laughs> when you got fired. As much as, well, tell me as much as I was excited to leave, there was also the the shame around being fired and unwanted. I did feel that devastation. I felt the devastation of not knowing where I was supposed to go, even though I welcomed the freedom and the openness and the lack of burden that was now suddenly removed. I guess in talking about it, it was very paradoxical. Mm-hmm. Well, and just that there were really wonderful things that I was looking forward to. And there was also really painful aspects of having to go through losing a job, really for any reason. Uh, I kind of, I don't know. I'm trying to think back. Did I deal with that? What did I do with that devastation? <laughs> <laughs> Really? Did I just keep moving like most of us do? (laughs) That's so funny. I feel that's a good question to ask yourself too. It's like, did I really give myself space to think about it, or did I just do the next best thing? And I think there's nothing wrong with you. Don't have to process everything. Like you really don't. Like not everything needs an explanation. And I think so many people think. I have to like psychotherapize this process in my life. But literally when you're in survival mode or when you lose a job or when things happen to you, you can't really, you don't really have time. Absolutely. And I love that we as therapists are telling people you don't have to psychoanalyze everything right away and mark it as addressed (laughs) because all (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Processing something doesn't necessarily mean it's like this one time event or you have to like sit down and process something in the market as checked. I think processing 
is a series of little events where you show up to yourself and whatever you might be going through at that time and place. And you come back to yourself again and again and again as you're living your life, as you're getting more and more experiences, new information, growing. I think that's closer to what processing actually feels like, at least for me. Mm. It's it's a non-linear process. Yeah. It's non-linear, it's ongoing, and it happens over the course of your life, however long that might be. I don't know that I necessarily sat down and processed me leaving advertising all that much. Mm. I think I just felt it Mm. from time to time. And I would process whatever was coming up then. And then I would take another step forward in whatever I was doing in my life. And then it would come up again another time until eventually... Now I feel like I have made meaning from that experience and that it's a chapter Mm. that's closed in my mind. That didn't necessarily happen right when everything was going on. Do you remember when you told me you didn't think you were in? (laughs) I do. I do. And there's a part of me. This is very There's a part of me that still has not yet let go of that idea. You're very interesting. I still don't think I'm Especially for me as like someone who has like interviewed so many people for podcasts, like you, here's my submission of why I think you're interesting. If we were a classroom and I had to write an essay about why Catherine is interesting, I think that you are so honest with yourself and you're very real about the things that you've gone through and the pain that you've been through as a human. And I think that people want to hear that. I want to hear that because all over the media, you hear success stories. And I think that you're, what I'm hearing you say is like, you're sort of peeling back these layers of what you think success should be or what it is really. And helping people understand that it doesn't take making a lot of money or working at a corporate job. Sometimes making meaning out of things that you've been through is the beautiful thing about living your life. Thank you. That means a lot to me because I think I've always struggled to be honest, at least outwardly to other people I definitely struggled to be honest with myself when I was wrestling with this career situation. And I think that was one of the big lessons that I took away from this whole career debacle, which was that we have to be honest with ourselves because there's no other way to do it. So then how'd you end up here? So I took a yoga teacher training and after I left advertising, I started to teach a few classes here and there. So I taught at a local gym. I taught with a company that sets up wellness events for corporations, which was really cool for me to be able to go back into the corporate physical space, but in a completely different role. And that was actually really healing for me to be able to do that, to see myself be able to do that. 
so yeah, I started to teach at different companies. I taught at AT&T down in the South Bay for a couple of years. And I started to even work at the local gym, doing some administrative stuff. And it was by no means organized or laying a path for myself forward, but it was kind of giving me the opportunity to do what I needed to do to continue living while I figured out the rest of the plan. And then from there, I think the other big thing that I did was I really started to ask myself what I liked, what I wanted going forward. So some of the questions that I asked myself were in my ideal day, like what would I be doing? What would happen? How would my day be structured? I asked myself, who do I look up to in this world? And not because they make a lot of money or they have all these achievements that other people think are really cool, but who do I really admire? And the person that I thought of was Oprah, her personal journey through adversity and triumphing over that that is already in itself so incredible. And to see her, like her job is to sit down with people and talk to them about life and their journey and how to be happy, how to heal, how to live a fulfilling, wonderful life. Like who doesn't want to do that? I mean, I guess some people don't want to do that. But <laughs> when I looked at Oprah, Oprah's I, the like, best. I, want to do that. I love Oprah. <sighs> So then, okay, why didn't you move to the the decision to become a talk show host? Well, see, that's where I really needed to then take into my own natural temperament and my own strengths into account. So for me, I don't necessarily like to be in the spotlight or in front of a lot of people. So that's how you can kind of start to filter out what does make sense for you. So for me, talk show host, while that's a great career, would terrify me every day and it would have so much anxiety. <laughs> no, I'm going to leave that up to the professionals. So it's it sort of with the, the cross section of, I really want to talk to people about life and how to live a good life and see their honest feelings and pain. But I want to do that from this place of helping. I'm here to help people. I also wanted to sort of do work that was maybe a little bit quieter. So I came from a world where there were meetings with a lot of people, there were presentations, there were lots of conference calls, and I didn't want to have to go back into a place where I was doing that on a day-to-day basis. Me sitting in a room with one single person is really wonderful for me. I got inspired by my own therapy and seeing my own therapist working. And I had that kind of thought of like, oh, I wonder if I could do this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It was really you really don't. You really don't. And you actually don't have to know. And you're not supposed to know. How could you? 
yeah, it's it's just that the not knowing is so frightening sometimes that it stops us in our tracks completely. We stop living our life. We stop asking questions and we stop trying to find out. But you really don't know. And I had to take many steps where I didn't know where it was going to eventually lead me to this place of, oh, I think therapy could be really great. Yeah. Yeah. So that's how I ended up in in grad school. And it was funny because, yeah, I had thoughts around like, maybe I could be a yoga teacher professionally, like full time. At one point, I thought about being a physical therapist because my favorite yoga teacher, she was a physical therapist by trade. Um, so I scrolled through a bunch of different careers before I landed on therapy being the one I would pursue. And the funny thing is, is after I started to consider therapy as a career, I planned to apply to grad school. And what ended up happening was that I chickened out and I ended up applying to the next year's program in the end. Yeah. Yeah. I think I just got used to it, to be honest. Got used to the idea of this path. Yeah, I think at first it was a little scary, a little too scary that I ended up, even though I kind of landed on this idea that I was excited about, I ended up not following through on it for a whole nine months. Mm. My, mm. Can I tell you a story? I didn't know that getting a master's in social work, which is my degree, would lead me here. <laughs> yeah. I, I knew I wanted to become a therapist. But like my mom, I guess, was worried about my future because I was graduating with a sociology degree. And she's like, what are you going to do with that career? <laughs> and I love my mom so much. But she's like, honey, if you don't want to be a nurse or if you don't want to be a doctor, there are these women that come to our hospital. They just literally sit and listen to people talk and they have a conversation with them. And they have this degree called MSW. And you should look into that. And she had, she gave me someone's number. And I thought that to get that degree, all I could do was work in a hospital. Because I, all I knew was like MSWs working as hospital social workers. So I was like, okay, I guess I'll do that. My therapist who I'm, I still get therapy from is an LMFT. So I was like, oh, I didn't get the degree. So whatever. And then I went to grad school not knowing what I was doing. Wow. That is and amazing. I got here. That's so funny. <laughs> I think a lot of social workers do relate to that kind of journey. They go in thinking one thing and then they come out completely somewhere else and naturally become the field we're in. Many of them have found their way to therapy versus being in something else within the social work field. That's so cool. Yeah. Yeah, and to each their own because I've I've interned, okay. worked for the VA, school systems and nonprofits, wow. and yeah. I was like a writer for a hospice at one point, and I volunteered. <laughs> but like, I always came back to this. Mm -hmm. Like, this is I light up whenever mm -hmm. I get the opportunity to talk to people. One of my friends asked me the other day. He was like, "What?" got you to do this and there's just nothing like sitting down 
talking to a client. I love it. There's nothing like it. I think there's a nosy part in me too, because I just want to know. People are going, I want to know how they're thinking and feeling about it. I just want to know. That's so true. I think a lot of therapists share this. We don't really do well with fake or not telling each other what's going on. That's all me too. (laughs) (laughs) I can see you as a 10-year-old going, really? (laughs) I love that. I remember... Like, that's actually something I admire in a lot of my friends. The reason why I become friends with them is they they know when I'm not okay. And I think I really do believe this. Woven into the fabric of every human is a desire to be seen and a desire to have friendship and relationship. And when people notice, like, there's a change in you, it's nice. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. I'm smiling because I can feel the warmth of that, like how wonderful it is to have that sense of community and a sense of continuity that people have you in their minds and can see that you're not the same, you're not okay, how wonderful that is and how healing that can even be in itself that somebody could see that. Inadvertently, even though we talked about our lives, I feel like we still touched on the topic of toxic masculinity, which is interesting how that works out, how it made like. Yeah, I mean, it's so pervasive that it's one of those things that's so invisible. And even if we're not consciously thinking about it, we're living it. It's there. How could we not come back to it? Yeah, because I think that in order to heal, we have to understand the system that we're a part of and the systems that allowed us to become the people that we are. And your story really encapsulates that. It's like the systems and how the systems affected you, the corporate system, the education system, this distraction of success and what success is. Like, in inevitably, it can lead us astray. We're not tuned into how it's impacting us, whether we feel connected and fulfilled, whether we feel like we're contributing something meaningful to the world. And I think there's there's so much power in understanding the system and naming it, like you're saying. Then naming something allows you to find some distance from it so that you're not just completely wrapped up in its ideas and its assumptions. And with that little bit of distance, you're so much more equipped to start to challenge whether this particular system is for you or if you want to rebel in some way or carve your own path in some way. So good. I'm. I want to end with this, cat. I want to end in gratitude and I want to end in, I feel full from this conversation. Like, I feel like I just had a buffet of, of goodness 
you're an incredible human. And I say that because I'm appreciative of how honest and vulnerable you've been today. And I have no doubt that this is going to help people and it's going to serve people well. But beyond that, like, I feel honored that I get to work alongside you because you've done so much incredible work on yourself that it shows just in how like you tell your story. And I get excited that I get to watch that and I get to witness to that. Thanks, Helen. I am so happy that I got to meet you and we get to work together. I feel like you just bring so much to the table, like not even like work-wise, but just in relationship and conversation. It's, it's awesome. And I'm really glad that I did this, even though I was a scared buddy. <laughs> <laughs>